You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another edition of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm here today with the next of our collaborative instalments with Advances in Simulation, Open Access Simulation Journal. And today we're going to be focused on an editorial titled Words Matter Towards a New Lexicon for Non-Technical Skills Training. And in order to discuss this editorial, we are joined by uh, Paul Murphy, the lead author, and also by Pamela Andriata, who is a long-time simulation expert uh, and wise person. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Paul, welcome to Simulcast. Hi, Vic. Thanks. This is great. Excellent. Well, we're pleased to have you. So you have a little bit of an interesting professional take on simulation. Do you want to tell us about uh, where you work and how you work in this field? Yeah, I work in the drama department at Queen's University in Belfast. And over the last six years, I've worked increasingly with colleagues in simulation-based education um, and also with colleagues in healthcare, including medicine, nursing, midwifery and allied health professions, including psychiatry and social work. I work with colleagues in writing scenarios and staging them in simulations where we have simulated participants, such as former patients who are paid to engage in performances, or my own drama students who engage in performances part of their studies. And this is coming to the end of the third year where we've had quite interdisciplinary engagements with um, a lot of different um, health and social care departments at Queen's, but also local hospitals as well as um, social care services. Well, that's uh, fascinating and probably a little bit unusual in the healthcare simulation world. And we're going to come back to that story because it's very relevant, I think, to the uh, article that you've written. Pamela, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself. You and I go way back, but not all our listeners might know you as well as I do. Thanks, Vic. Yeah, uh, my background is in human performance. So I study human performance in high stress, uh, high impact environments. And uh, I early years was more in the military in space and then moved into medicine and surgery um, just shy of two decades ago now. And the uses of simulation for me have always been related to not just developing the performance abilities for people in environments where you really need to know what you're doing before you're in the environment, uh, but also as a platform for performance assessment. So I use simulation to facilitate that type of work, both the training, but also the performance assessment. Sounds like something that might involve both uh, so-called non-technical skills and technical ones, which we'll come back to. Uh, The other thing that Pamela didn't mention there is she's a previous president for the Society uh, for Simulation in Healthcare and uh, also has been very active in a number of leadership roles, both within professional societies and academic institutions. So welcome, Pamela. It's nice to have you. Thank you. Uh, We might jump into our uh, editorial now. And, Paul, perhaps you could sort of kick this off because, as we said, this is really focused on this concept of non-technical skills and the inadequacy of the term. But perhaps you could step us back a little bit. What prompted this editorial? What's the problem here? And why did you and your co-authors, Deborah Nestel and Jerry Gormley, uh, decide to write it? The phrase non-technical skills really surprised me, um, simply because 
of the lack of precision involved. The sciences, regardless of whether they are the physical sciences or the health sciences, are predicated upon high levels of accuracy in measurement and description. Nonetheless, for example, we've learned from physicists that they don't know what 94% of the universe is made of, so they use terms like dark matter and dark energy to describe the overwhelming mass of the cosmos. When scientists use phrases like this, it means that they don't know how to describe the phenomena because they don't yet understand them. In a similar way that differs in scale but is relevant to the working lives of healthcare professionals, most of their activity and their encounters, either with patients or with colleagues, is not strictly clinical, but what you might call interpersonal. Um, at Queen's, we recorded and analysed a number of simulations of scenarios focusing on challenging conversations and breaking bad news, such as infant mortality and mental health assessment for detention. We found that most of the activity in, say, a 15 to 20 minute scenario could accurately be described as interpersonal rather than strictly clinical. So most of the activity is described in a negative sense, variously as non-technical or non-verbal. This is contrary to scientific principles of accuracy and clarity. The reason for this, of course, is because healthcare professionals are taught to focus predominantly on clinical rather than interpersonal skills from the beginning of their undergraduate education and throughout their career. In this context, then, it's unsurprising that they are effectively in the dark about these non-skills, whereas for those of us engaged in the arts and humanities, particularly the dramatic arts, these skills are as clear as the sun in the sky. Hmm, well, this is um, an interesting take. I mean, I think many people would say that this feels inadequate, but you're saying this has actually got probably a deeper problem, uh, which goes to, I guess, our outlook on the world and the way science and uh, technology in particular has infiltrated our understanding of words like technical. Uh, I can't even say in your editorial you've got a Greek word that's written in ancient Greek. You'll have to tell me the pronunciation of that. Um, and you take us back through the history of the concept of technical before we even start to talk about what is non-technical. And you make the point that technology has influenced a little bit about what we think about that. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, the, the word there, um, the Greek word is techne. Um, and um, it, it's an it's in initial usage. It means art or craft. And that was, I mean, one should, you could argue there's this thing called the etymological fallacy, which is a warning that says you shouldn't really go back and expect that the first ever usage of a word should determine you know, future usage. But nonetheless, it's instructive to see how words have evolved over time and how they come to mean certain things today that they haven't always meant. So my point really is that the word technical doesn't necessarily mean, as we understand it today, as it did in its first usage. And over the centuries, it's evolved to mean different things at different times. So you have this change, particularly in the Western world in the last two or three centuries. You have the Industrial Revolution. We have mechanization as a fact of life now. More recently, you have the Digital Revolution. And as part of these sort of major massive transformations in, in society and, and the integration of technology into our working lives more and more often, it's had a cultural impact um, that's happened so slowly and imperceptibly that we just take it as a given now. So technology and technologization has become part of the fabric of health professions education as it has every other um, facet of our working lives. So that when you say something that's uh, something is technical, usually implies some kind of interface with um, hard technology, either a scalpel or a syringe or um, a machine to measure whether uh, someone's pulse or whether their heart rate or, or et cetera. 
So the emphasis is if you're technically skilled and, and you have hard skills knowledge, it's about your interaction with machines, where soft skills and non-technical implies interaction with humans, which is sort of soft and not hard, and we can all figure that out by ourselves. And yet the problem is, is that we can't, and that it is a skill like any other that needs to be developed and, and finessed. Yes, and I think you've really um, given a great explanation there of how this is a language issue, but which has obviously deeper implications in terms of the hierarchy of skills that we think about. And you've taken one example from your uh, paragraph there about hard versus soft, um, resulting in a prioritization of skills involving interaction with technology over skills involving interaction with people. And the other examples you give there are about using standardized patients as opposed to engaging them because uh, of the objectification of people. Uh, and then you're also about the distinction between standardized, which is, and I'll quote here, a word best applied to a product or process that can be calibrated like a machine as opposed to simulated participants being a better phrase. And uh, I couldn't agree more. So, uh, Pamela, I might ask you here, while we're still trying to define the problem uh, with this term non-technical skills, you wrote an editorial about this back in uh, 2011. Is the problem the same? Is the problem different? Uh, why are we still talking about it? I think the problem is the same. I think the application of terminology to identify the problem is a bit simplistic um, so, for example, you know, the use of the term technical skills, um, un understanding the performance construct of clinicians requires a deeper understanding of all of their abilities that are coalesced into what one might call professional practice. And so just even within the term technical, to equate it to the application of technology, yes, I do believe that that's one piece of it. But I also believe people use the term technical to refer to technique, which may or may not uh, be facilitated by the use of technology. So for example, the way a surgeon will use a scalpel or the way uh, an anesthetist will uh, use a laryngoscope there's technique that's associated with that. And quite often, especially in surgical training, we use the term technical skills to really refer to technique, not so much the uses of technology. So I think just that point kind of drives home the complexity of how we use terminology and what it means, even within the health professions and different subgroups within the health professions. For non-technical skills, I actually prefer the term interpersonal. Interpersonal skills, we use it all the time, interpersonal abilities. It's a common, so to say we use non-technical skills to refer to interpersonal skills, we all know what that means. So why not just use the term interpersonal? In that regard, non-technical skills could also refer to other uh, professional capacities for clinicians. Decision-making, decision-making, reasoning, judgment, uh, aspects of professionalism that are related to scholarship or punctuality or honesty and integrity, uh, ethical behavior. All of these um, are not technical skills per se, but some of them are not really interpersonal skills either. So the term non-technical um, is kind of a, 
I don't know. To me, it's nondescript, but it's kind of a catch-all for that encompasses some of those other elements of the professional performance that we're expecting um, from our clinicians. Yes, and I think you've really highlighted there what has probably been the problem. Even a general disquiet with the term non-technical has been hard to replace with a single catch-all. And whether we need to have a single catch-all is probably the point of this editorial. But are we talking about communication with patients? Are we talking about communication with peers? Are we talking about observable behaviours within a team? As you say, are we talking about still cognitive uh, skills that might not involve actual technical, external, um, procedural elements? And so I think that is one of the issues. What is the scope of this term, even if we're going to go to a new one? So, Paul, you're so going to suggest that we call this uh, these categories behavioural skills. Um, but before we even get to that term, there's a beautiful and I think probably quite unique piece in this editorial about the similarities between uh, simulation-based education and actor training. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it seems that's been very instructive with where you've got to in terms of the behavioural skills terminology. Yes, um, really the, the work in which I'm engaged currently and where it evolved over the last five years was on this real overlap or intersection, if you will, between so many um, forms of health professions education or social work education, variously described as um, role play or breaking bad news or challenging conversations, but all of them involve, um, as Pamela just referred to there, quite eloquently, interpersonal, interpersonal behavior, interpersonal interaction. And actor training, such as the Stanislavski system, I think is a good framework in which to teach these behavioral skills, these interpersonal skills, principally because the focus is on understanding what makes us innately human and drawing upon those traits to create and perform a role, acting as an art, like music, dance, or painting and involves particular skills and techniques that can be taught and refined. The focus in acting is on interpersonal interaction, where an audience watches a live performance, and during which they suspend their belief that the situation is artificial, and in doing so, they learn about the nuances and intricacies of human behaviour. My colleague Jerry Gormley has written very eloquently about this with a, and a number of articles with colleagues about the, this is before I met Jerry, um, writing about how you have props and it's, a, it's like a theatrical setting and it's a, a stage. So the overlaps are, are clear and profound to me. So from that basis of in, intersecting interests as well as, you know, clear behavioral overlaps, we, we sort of have developed our approach at Queen's and almost every, well, every year as it happens, I work, end up working with colleagues in different sort of health professions, whether it be pediatrics or emergency medical care. And they all seem to work around the same principles of, you know, some kind of behavior or interpersonal interaction. And yet, if you look at the curriculum, whether it's from the General Medical Council or some other institution, there isn't the same weight in terms of requirement for the same level of training and detail in interpersonal skills as there is in the other clinical skills. As the argument could be made that, look, we pick up these interpersonal skills in everyday life, we don't need to be trained in them. Any more, any more than we need to be trained to, to breathe or to see. But uh, you, you, you can take that argument, but it only goes so far. Whereas if you have a situation where you're trained in any skill, by definition, you're going to improve by the mean left to your own devices. 
Yes, and I think it is uh, lapses, uh, omissions in those skills that are overrepresented in our patient adverse events or even uh, poor patient experience. So uh, this is kind of interesting because I think many people understand the acting analogy when it comes to our simulated patients, when it comes to thinking about scenario design as a play or as an act. And you've really taken it a step further, though, because now you're saying that the training process of simulation is analogous to the training process for healthcare clinicians, and that simulation is a tool to aid in the training of our actor clinicians. And I think this is a step further than many of us would have thought about the utility of drama. So... um, I'm interested to know a little more about that because when we talk, it's easy to sort of say training in these skills, but how do you think that has affected the way you've approached your scenario design and delivery and uh, debriefing? I was um, struck um, and continue to be struck, as I say, with each discipline of um, medicine or allied healthcare professions that I work with on the similarity of approach. And I come back to the, the system developed by the, the Russian um, actor and director, Konstantin Stanislavsky. His was a, I won't go into the depth now because we could spend <laughs> all of the interview talking about this and very scratch the surface, but in essence, um, his was a very eclectic system. Um, he looked um, far and wide to find a way to, to bring a hybrid approach to understand what makes human beings tick and therefore how can you create a human being or a situation where it seems as if you have real human beings on the stage rather than um, pure characters. You, you need to believe that it's a human being rather than a character. And so the system he created was based variously on yoga, on dance, on opera, and on modern, uh, then modern business techniques because he's writing at the turn of the 20th century. So it's a very structured, systematic, and methodological approach, which is exactly the same principles you apply when you're training a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or a midwife. So the, if you, if I were to show you or if I were to put on a screen just the, the structure of Stanislavski's system itself, you, you would be forgiven for misinterpreting it as a workflow pattern for a production line for a, a motor company or for um, a systematized approach for teaching a particular um, um, range of skills in surgery because it's programmatic and, and systematic and very modernist in that regard. But for me, um, that works as a very useful framework in which these so-called or, you know, arguably invisible um, soft skills or interpersonal skills can be made real, can be given flesh and and be made practically um, visible and therefore teachable in a sort of iterative curriculum or a kind of a spiral curriculum. And over a period of time, if you integrate this into a curriculum, say, be it medicine or nursing, over a period of two or three years, even just say a little bit every week, the students will pick up competencies and skills and be able to modify their behavior and have control and understanding of their behavior in such a nuanced way that no student will have had beforehand because it will have been integrated more effectively. Yes, and I think that's one of the things I really picked up from your editorial is about this is a systematic, methodical, task-driven approach to individualized objectives, and I'm quoting here. You're listening to Simulcast. 
So let's think about this term behavioural. And Pamela, I might get you in here because you, when you wrote your article in 2011 in Simulation in Healthcare, I guess you didn't use that term. What do you think? This is really a taxonomic question. Do we have one catch-all or do we just have specific descriptors for each uh, skill that we're talking about? What do you think of this term behavioural? Well, I'm not a fan. Um, and, and the reason I'm not a fan, in performance assessment, we use the term behavior to mean something very specific. Um, so a behavior is something that a person does after they have acquired their particular, whatever it is they're learning. So whether it's you know suturing skills or uh, the ability to use an otoscope or the ability to uh, take a patient history, we refer to those as behaviors. Um, so to take that term and then move it um, to encompass something like interpersonal skills, I think is complicating the situation in the same way. Simulcast. It complicates things when we use a term that has one meaning um, in the general vernacular and apply it to a very specific application in a, in a professional context. So I'm, I'm a bit trepidatious about um, saying behavior um, is the correct um, mechanism for discussing and describing interpersonal uh, abilities. My preference would be to call them interpersonal skills and to call things like decision-making and judgment, decision-making and judgment, and be more specific about what we're referring to. I would prefer to see us do the same with the term technical skills and discuss things like surgical technique, procedural technique, airway management techniques, and not uh, look at things so much in a catch-all of one term uh, for everything. So you're kind of saying, why do we need to have a binary system at all? Mm -hmm. And if we've got a series of... um, observable skills that we wish to assess. And let's face it, you are a little bit um, affected by your context and expertise in that area. Uh, You want some things that are quite explicitly described. It is human nature though, Pamela, to try and clump things together. What do we do about that? I do think it's human nature. And I think especially in the health professions, we are trained to think that way. You know, we're, we're, it's either this way or that way, or you follow a script, you follow a protocol, um, checklists, what have you. Uh, the challenge comes in in that it's not necessarily representative of the true performance construct, which is messy and detailed. And it's important to get those differential elements identified um, accurately, because if we're using those frameworks for training in the health professions, we need to be very clear about what is expected of the people who are training in that context, right? To me, I think we need to be very explicit in what we allow ourselves to present to students to help them learn. And the more explicit we are, the more successful they will be because the ambiguity becomes um, almost negligent in that capacity, right? So I do appreciate the, the desire to kind of reduce the complexity, but it's a complex construct, right? We're dealing with a very complex construct. 
Yes, yeah, so your your call is really for greater specificity, whatever kind of skills that we're talking about. Well, Paul, you uh, we've got a bit of controversy here. Do you want to speak up in defence of the term behavioural, behavioural, or is your point simply to say we need to move on from non-technical? Um, I'd, well, I, I, I must say I, I completely agree with Pamela. Um, the behavioural, um, the, the word behavioural, is not something I'm particularly wedded to or have a particular um, drive to um, insist upon. Um, I've discussed this um, issue with um, um, colleagues um, at Queen's University um, at, at local hospitals, and the phrase that, that kept, keeps coming up in terms of practical use um, in the different educational settings of the hospitals and in the training centres at Queen's is behavioural. I think simply be, think because um, colleagues focus a lot on uh, human factors um, after the mid-staffs crisis here in the UK in 2010 and the big drive by the GMC towards human factors education in which behavioural skills is deemed to be a constituent element, which is why I think it has such traction here. But, I mean, a lot of um, focus in the, the study of drama um, and theatre is driven by a, a recent wave of the last 20 years called performance studies and issues of performativity and, and overlaps with sociology, anthropology, many of the um, issues and disciplines that Pamela has spoken very eloquently about have really um, added complexity and nuance to the study of drama and by definition and extension, what it means to interact with other people in a meaningful setting. I suppose to illustrate what I mean by behavioral skills, I, I think the term is more of a of a word as a holding word in order to advance the conversation away from silly things like non this or non that and hopefully I would use the word perhaps performance skills but then you could say well surgeons perform with a scalpel as well as they perform when they talk to a patient so it's too generic so nonetheless I think we need to move it forward incrementally which is how science works anyway isn't it by increment but to illustrate what I mean by behavioural skills, let's start with what I say about the need to change the phrase non-verbal to physical communication. I think we need to move from a notion of communication to impression management. I mean, we think of phrases like first impression or making an impression or to be impressive or to impress as a physical haptic engagement. If you touch someone on the elbow or, or shake their hand, and then that's linked to the emotional impression that you make on a patient or on a colleague. For example, when you see a person crying, whether they're a child who had lost their parent in a supermarket or an adult in a waiting room at a hospital who's just learned that they've lost a family member, the instinctive reaction for most people is to reach out and touch them, whether to hold their hand or put an arm around them or hug them. So interaction is more than just knowledge transfer, although it is, of course, important when we talk about communication. I think the way knowledge is transferred, whether the information is as mundane as the need for a sticking plaster, as sublime as a pregnancy, or as tragic as infant mortality. All of these must be performed in specific ways. So performativity is something I would stress. But again, it's incremental. If, if I were to walk into a room full of healthcare professionals and try and say, right, we'll talk about performativity today, it'll become more of an academic seminar rather than a way of trying to move forward incrementally to enhance what used to be called communication skills, or as we're calling for the moment, behavioral or interpersonal skills. Yes, you're uh, really highlighting there some fundamental concepts about language and uh, how it has to share meanings between people. 
And uh, I think one of the challenges here is, you know, who defines the language? We know the Society for Simulation Healthcare has a healthcare dictionary, which probably helped a fair bit in clarifying the meanings of some terms in simulation. And uh, I wonder, Pamela, whether, you know, what are the levers for people to actually change whatever terminology we want to move towards? And I'm kind of with you that maybe we can't just be lazy and use a deficit terminology and instead have to talk about uh, patient communication skills, leadership skills, teamwork skills, interpersonal skills. Uh, what do you think will be the levers for change in the way people use words? Well, I think changes in language are very difficult to control. Um, I think they're culturally based, societally based. Um, you know, you can have... Um, Language, even within an institution, mean one thing to one department or one division and have it mean something totally different to another. Language is not the issue as much as making sure that we are adhering to our values and making sure that whether the curriculum is explicit or hidden, it adheres to those values of what we expect. Yes, Paul. Um, it's great that um, Pamela has raised the word culture and, and values because I think, for example, the word used when uh, we highlight the word, the phrase used standardized patient, right? The word used typifies the cultural problem in health professions education so far as it implies that people can be used in the way that a scalpel or a syringe can be used. To illustrate the point, you know, it would be strange to hear a patient say that they used a nurse or that they used a doctor, the patient would most likely say that they saw a nurse or a doctor, which is a commonplace way of saying, of course, that they engaged with a nurse or a doctor. So it's more accurate, not to mention appropriate, to say that we engaged with simulated patients rather than say we used them like a tool or a machine. I'm saying this because these phrases, these words emerge incrementally over time. Um, as part of the evolution of a culture of practice, whether it be in medicine or law, or any other professional um, um, institution that has education and, and protocol as a requirement of advancement. I mean, the word standardized, um, standardized patients is part of the, the terminology, but that in itself emerges from this technologized culture, which is itself a product of the requirement in the physical sciences for, for repeatability, which is a hallmark of scientific method. I mean, this is manifest most obviously in the OSCE objective standardized clinical exam, which you have a certain checklist of procedures that you must perform in a certain way in order to pass the exam. Nonetheless, as we know, human behavior, it just isn't standardized in the same way that pharmacological testing, for example, has to be standardized. Any decent primer on social science research methods will explain in the opening chapters that social science is inherently messy because human interaction is inherently messy and complicated. Now, this is not to suggest for a moment that we should jettison scientific rigor, but instead we should adopt an approach more in line with social science rather than physical science for the simple reason that human interaction can't be measured or standardized in the way, same way as a drug trial. Um, I think, as I say in the, the concluding lines to the, to the piece, we need our language and our behavior to map onto reality rather than insisting upon language and behavior that has no bearing upon the real world outside of the classroom. Mm. This is, uh, again, very insightful. So I guess to as we sort of start to draw our conversation to a close, uh, 
I think we've identified pretty nicely we don't like the term non-technical skills. And some of that is because we don't like the precision or the lack of precision there. But one of the things is it also cements a hierarchy of skills and sends strong messages that we think are not that helpful if we're really trying to train effective healthcare professionals. And I think uh, both of you have called for more precision uh, and maybe we can't really have a catch-all phrase. And looking forward, it seems as though many of the things that are going to change language are probably deeper than that. And in changing the approach that we have to our preparation of healthcare professionals, that the change in language will probably naturally follow that rather than necessarily um, being able to just simply say, this is how we should term something. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm going to ask for any kind of last thoughts or comments, uh, maybe from you, Paul. I think um, in terms of the way forward from here, increasingly my colleagues and I are finding at Queen's and across sort of Belfast, Northern Ireland, that there's definitely scope to develop a new hybrid system to train students in well, the broader panoply of call it behavioral skills or performance skills or interpersonal skills. And I think it needs to be in integrated into a sort of a spiral curriculum so that it becomes embedded from first year that interpersonal skills training is something that can be trained and is an essential part all the way through um, from first year undergraduate all the way through residency and specialist training into consultancy. I think not only, and this is the final thing I'll suggest, it's not only that... Um, health professions, students, doctors in, in the making, nurses in the making, midwives in the making, need to learn behavioral skills for their own benefit to make them better professionals. But I think they also need to immerse themselves in the role of the patient in the scenarios, mostly at the moment, I've noticed that rarely would you have a, 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 a medical student or a nursing student perform the role of the patient in any degree of um, of training or immersion Really, so I think in order for you to to achieve and understand empathy in a more profound way, you have you physically have to put yourselves in the shoes of the of the patients by working with um, former patients who work as simulated participants in order to perform the role from a re on a regular basis, so they can alter between your professional role and the role of the patient. I think only then can we really start to get our heads around the complexities of what interpersonal actually means. Brilliant. Sounds very interesting. Pamela, this feels like yet another reason why I love simulation is because of its ability to draw from other fields of endeavor like drama. Uh, have you got any final thoughts for us? I was thinking exactly the same thing as Paul was speaking. I think that is one of the, the true powerful Oh, there's so many wonderful things that simulation can bring, but one of the powerful aspects, and we have actually started to see this in the last decade, is that opportunity to bridge interprofessional communications uh, that are really difficult to get at um, carefully and sensitively uh, in the applied environment. If we can really say, this is of value to us, and it is just as important as your ability to put in a valve, you know, to do a valve replacement. It's just as important how you speak to your perfusionist. You might have a great technical skill to do that, but if you can't speak kindly and respectfully to your perfusionist, it's a problem. It sets a tone that then carries over into all other aspects of patient care. 
Yes, well, that sounds like a very um, important principle and sentiment to uh, draw our conversation to a close on. Thank you, Pamela. So, simulcast listeners, uh, you will want to read more, of course. So, advances in simulation, Words Matter Towards a New Lexicon for Non-Technical Skills Training by Paul Murphy, Deborah Nestel and Jerry Gormley. And I'm sure there's going to be more on some of the work that uh, – Paul has been doing because I know the team at Queen's University in Belfast are very prolific in their writing. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with Pamela Andriata and Paul Murphy. Thank you both. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you, Paul. Sorry, thank you, Pamela. Thanks, Vic. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's wonderful again to work in our collaboration with Advances in Simulation. And I'm Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. 